0: folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmidt the Clam. I'm also known as Schmidt the Champ. And I am also, also extremely excited that my guest today is a distinguished journalist and author and scholar. I think that's very important to say up top uh, because we're talking about the CIA today and its history and its earliest days and how outrageously batshit they got. And and I think with anything where you have strange stories involving the CIA, you want very good sourcing, you want very solid work on it. And my guest today is a returning guest to the show. His name is Stephen Kinzer. Stephen is a senior fellow in international and public affairs at Brown University. He's also a longtime journalist for the New York Times and many other outlets. He's visited 50 countries and five continents in doing that work. He's also the author of many books, including an amazing book called The True Flag. And that book covers the Spanish-American War and opposition to it and surprising things about it. And we had a past episode about that that is linked in the full. notes, because I just love doing it and talking to him on that show. We're bringing Stephen back because he has another fantastic book out, and the title of that book is Poisoner in Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the Search for CIA Mind Control. Uh, One more time, that title is Poisoner in Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the Search for CIA Mind Control. There are also food notes for you to get yourself this fascinating nonfiction work, And uh, it's out now. So it's, uh, you can, uh, you can go get it. It just came out. And our topic today draws on what's in that book. It focuses on someone named Sidney Gottlieb, who you have never heard of, and there's a reason for that, which we will get into. It also focuses on where Sidney worked for more than two decades, the Central Intelligence Agency. And we're talking about how it, it got way, way more out of control than you realize. Whatever you've heard or you think you know about, oh, the CIA does some spooky and nefarious things, there's a lot more there. It also echoes to today in very relevant ways that we'll discuss. Uh, But just to give you a sampling of it, a brief sampling, uh, in 1945, uh, World War II wraps up in that year, and President Harry Truman closes down the OSS, which was the main intelligence agency for the United States in that time, because he felt that in peacetime, we we didn't totally need an elaborate intelligence agency like that. However, the Cold War is going on. So two years later, 1947, the Central Intelligence Agency is created uh, and its job is to protect the country, uh, you know, in a a spycraft kind of way. Pretty simple. So the CIA begins in 1947 with a pretty straightforward mission, admittedly a difficult task with a lot of intrigue to it, but pretty straightforward. Here's what they're doing not too long after that. By 1960, President Eisenhower is ordering that Fidel Castro be, quote, sawed off, leading to an incredible array of uh, assassination attempts and even just kind of humiliation attempts, schemes to make his beard fall off and to put an exploding cigar in his mouth if they could get there. We'll also have some food notes for more of those Castro things because there's tons there. That operation was so extensive that by the time Lyndon Johnson becomes president after Kennedy's assassination, In 1963, he ends most of those operations uh, uh, dealing with Castro. And as cited in Stephen Kinzer's fantastic book, LBJ said, quote, we had been operating a goddamn murder ink in the Caribbean, end quote. And uh, they really were really elaborate. It also got even weirder and stranger from there. The CIA around that time was running a project called Acoustic Kitty to try to do some spycraft. Now, usually you want a code codename uh, that, that sort of disguises what you're doing. Acoustic Kitty did not do that. It was an operation to turn cats into listening devices. And so what you would do is you would do surgery on a cat in a way where there were no scars showing uh, afterward. And then put a listening device in the cat that used the structures of its ear to hear what was going on. And the project actually worked from a technical perspective and didn't work as spycraft because cats don't do what you want them to. They just leave or go do something else later. And I sound like I'm joking or, or want to be mean to animals. I really, really, really don't. And I'm not kidding. That was just what the CIA got up to within, a, you know, a little more than a decade after its founding. So I think this is an amazing episode. Also, one last thing before we get into it. I really, really want to thank everybody who came to our live London Podcast Festival episode of the show. I am now back from it. I I survived the flight and everything. And you were all wonderful. I really enjoyed meeting you. And we also had great guests. It was just a great experience. And I'm glad people will be hearing that show in a few weeks. So very exciting. But that is in the future. Let's get into CIA stuff. So please sit back or get up and and give your cat some nice pets, you know, because your cat's wonderful and should not be turned into a listening device. If anything, it won't stick around to listen to what you want to hear. Either way, here's this episode of The Cracked Podcast with journalist, author, and scholar Stephen Kinzer, author of Poisoner in Chief. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. I had never heard of Sidney Gottlieb until I read this book, and I also I went and watched Wormwood on Netflix after I read it, because I was that into it. But I, I had never heard of him before. Do you find that people know who he is before they come across your work on this?
1: Absolutely not. One of the yeah. characteristics that defines Sidney Gottlieb's life is that he lived in total anonymity. Nobody ever heard of him. Nobody knew who he was. I think I might have discovered the most powerful unknown American of the 20th century. I uh, was able to get the CIA finally to release a photo of what he looked like when he worked at the CIA, which had never been released before. And I suggested to my publisher, since we have this never-before-seen photo, we should put it on the cover. And at first they liked the idea, but then they came up with another uh, reason not to do it, which is nobody's going to recognize the guy. He's, he's totally <laughs> anonymous, so therefore we should just put some vague silhouette on the cover to make it show how mysterious he was. But if anybody tells you they already heard of Sidney Gottlieb, I would be dubious, because even I had hardly heard of him and just dug into his life as I was working on this book. So he definitely is a completely unknown, completely invisible figure who I'm trying to resurrect in order to show uh, how important and how profound was uh, the work That he did for the CIA.
0: Yeah, he's he's truly, truly an unknown American. Like, it's it's not the kind of thing where someone just isn't prominent in our knowledge of history, or or just isn't as well remembered as they could be. Like, as you say, he was not even photographed uh, for a very, very long time until uh, someone snuck one. That's amazing. (laughs)
1: Yeah, well, it wasn't only like some other people you haven't heard of that uh, nobody ever wrote about them or nobody thought that they were important. It was more than that. With Sidney Gottlieb, there was an active effort to be sure that nobody would ever know who he was because – If you ever knew who he was, then you would get to know what he did. And the things he did were some of the most secret projects of the entire Cold War. Revealing them could have blown the CIA wide open, and it was very important that he maintain his
0: invisibility.
1: So I'm (laughs) I'm, uh, 20 years after his death trying to uh, shatter that just a little bit.
0: He joined the CIA in 1951, retired in 1973, and in that uh, little more than two decades working with them, what are some of those first couple things that that people uh, would, would immediately be taken by if they found out who he was?
1: Sidney Gottlieb was put in charge of one of the most amazing CIA projects ever. His job was to find the key to mind control. The CIA had this idea they could develop a drug or a potion or some kind of a procedure that would serve as a truth theorem, it would be an amnesiac, and also it would allow you to program the minds of victims so they could go out and commit crimes like sabotage or assassination and then forget not only who had ordered them to do it, but even the fact that they had done it. So, Sidney Gottlieb spent 10 years working on trying to find out the secret of mind control, and he did it in an extremely brutal way that resulted in unknown numbers of deaths and also shattered many lives. He decided that the way to get to mind control was a two step process. The first step Before you could insert a new mind into somebody's brain would be that you'd have to blow away the mind that was already in there. So he spent years trying to find ways to destroy a human mind. And in the course of these experiments, he used all sorts of intense combinations of drugs, stimulants, depressants, LSD, mescaline, heroin, cocaine, extracts of tropical plants and animal poisons, plus electroshock, sensory deprivation, and all kinds of other tools. In the end, after 10 years of this, he concluded that although he had been able to destroy the minds of an unknown number of people it was not possible to program them to do what he wanted them to do. So in the end, he concluded mind control is actually a myth. And the whole 10-year struggle to find this magic potion was all a waste. He and the other CIA operatives had been, affected by a generation or more of stories and books and movies about mind control and hypnotism, how you can make people do things against their will and they'll forget them. These CIA guys bought into that and they thought, well, if yeah. it could be in movies it must be able to be made real. And before they discovered that this was not possible, they spent 10 years laying waste to lives across three continents.
0: That's all so astounding. And in your book, you sort of trace that very interesting history of pop culture telling us that mind control is possible, like back to novels from the 1800s. And and, and then in particular, there was an amazing part where You're right that Gottlieb was starting to think maybe they couldn't do mind control right when the Manchurian Candidate came out in 1962, the movie. And so then the entire public decided it was possible right when this maniac working on it, even he started to think probably not.
1: Yes, and it's interesting that not only (laughs) did fiction shape MK Ultra. But later at the end, after MK Ultra came to an an end in the 1960s and Gottlieb reached his conclusion that the whole mind control idea was just a fake, it was too late to put that idea back in the bottle. Because of MK Ultra, you've now had many films and video games and TV shows that focus on mind control or mind manipulation. From the uh, Spotless Mind movie to uh, the Men in Black to the Born Identity, these all have kind of memory eraser erasure or mind control aspects. A lot of that comes out of MK Ultra. So a project that was originally shaped by the fictional world ended up shaping a new generation of the fictional world.
0: It's such a snake eating its own tail. So as I learned from the book here, the MK Ultra program, it was it was many different sub projects, but they were all, as you say, geared toward achieving mind control. Also speak on uh, the origins of them wanting to do it in the first place, because it seems like not only did pop culture tell them it was possible, but also they seemed to believe the Soviets had done it like the Soviets had pulled it off right at the dawn of the Cold War.
1: You have to try to put yourself back in the mindset of the early Cold War, which is very difficult to do now that we know how it came out. We believed, or we made ourselves believe, or we convinced ourselves, that the Soviets were plotting some kind of massive attack on Western Europe and the United States, and it could be launched at any moment. And with just a few minutes of warning, all human life uh, um, in our nation would be wiped away. Historians of the Cold War now agree that this assessment of Russian intent and uh, capacity was far exaggerated and and distant from reality, but at the time it seemed very real. We felt that uh, we were in a life-or-death competition uh, and that the death could come at any moment if we didn't prepare ourselves. So that led to a conclusion that anything that we could do to protect ourselves was justified and the loss of a few lives or even a few hundred lives uh, would be a small price to pay. So a couple of episodes in the late forties and early fifties electrified the CIA and led them to conclude mistakenly that the Soviets had uh, cracked the mind control code. First of all, there was the show trial of Cardinal Mincenti, the uh, Roman Catholic prelate of Hungary. He was convicted and sentenced to life in prison for treason on charges that were obviously false. And that caused a lot of outrage in the world. But at the CIA, there was a special interest in the Mincenti trial because... He had confessed to crimes that he obviously had not committed, and he seemed to be talking in a kind of a monotone. He looked glazed. We now know that Mincenti was broken by the same techniques that people have been using in prisons for hundreds of years, and still use uh, intense interrogations and beatings and keeping in solitary confinement. But we couldn't believe that. We thought... They drugged him some way. They've gotten away where they're programming him into saying the things that he's saying. The next thing mm-hmm. that happened was that our prisoners came home from uh, the Korean War And it turned out that several thousand of them had, in captivity, signed statements criticizing aspects of American life. Some of them spoke positively about communism. Several of the pilots confessed to having dropped uh, biological weapons on North Korea, something that the U.S. government fiercely denied never happened some of the pilots and other uh, soldiers actually stayed behind. They, want, they didn't want to come home, so they stayed in uh, North Korea or in China. This was so shocking to people at the CIA that they concluded – These people must have been brainwashed. And they even developed a theory that the brainwashing might have happened while the prisoners were being sent by train across Russia for repatriation through Europe, and that as the trains passed through northern China, particularly Manchuria— they felt the dizzy and something happened to them. This is where the name of Manchuria first became connected with the mind control idea. So it was also not true that the Korean <laughs> uh, prisoners, U- U.S. prisoners in Korea, had been brainwashed or subjected to any exotic uh, new technique. But... With the CIA mentality at the time, it was easy to believe they had. So these two episodes were misinterpreted as as proving that the Soviets had mastered the secret of mind control. That made the CIA so eager to pursue it uh, that it was willing to delegate the responsibility for this program to someone who carried out horrific experiments Without any supervision, because the people above him understood that he must be doing terrible things and therefore didn't want to know about them. That's why I think he must have been one of the very few Americans of the 20th century with a true license to kill issued by the
0: U.S. government. Throughout the book, it's very fascinating how little anyone seems to know about what Sidney Gottlieb is doing and and what he's up to. And they just know he's working on mind control, which, as you said, is springing from pop culture and a couple misunderstood real life events, uh, which is is baffling. They basically hired him to do something impossible, and then uh, he worked on it. And also looking back at those uh, stories coming from Korean war soldiers of biological weaponry being used, it was amazing to learn in this book, that the uh, just practice of biological warfare, it seems to go back further than I really realized, like back into the 1940s and and into sort of all of the sides of World War II working on it.
1: It's true. And one of the things I discovered in writing this book was that the CIA mind control project, MK Ultra was actually built on the foundation of research that had been done at Japanese and Nazi concentration camps. During World War II. In fact, the doctors who had overseen the vivisection factory in Japan and who had conducted lethal experiments on inmates at Nazi concentration camps were hired by the CIA to come and work with Gottlieb. He wanted to continue their experiments. For example... At the Dachau concentration camp, doctors famously conducted a series of experiments about mescaline. Well, MK Ultra and Gottlieb and his people were very interested in mescaline as a possible mind-control tool. So they brought the Nazis who had experimented on prisoners at Dachau to come and inform them and tell them, what new experiments could we do now? So I visited The safe house in Germany, now a nice little villa with apartments in it, which was one (laughs) of the very first places where Gottlieb carried out his torture sessions. And the guy who now owns the house and just bought it a few years ago was, of course, fully aware of the house's history. And he told me everybody in the neighborhood knows about what happened here. He said, in this house, the CIA conducted experiments that were a continuation of of experiments that the Nazis had conducted in the concentration camps. And the people in the neighborhood will also tell you that the bodies of victims were buried in forests around here in places that are now covered by apartment blocks and shopping malls. So it's not a secret around the neighborhood. And uh, it is a bizarre fact, especially to be discovering in Germany that the CIA was actively working with Nazi doctors. It's especially interesting because of Gottlieb's personal background. So Gottlieb was the son of Jewish immigrants. He grew up in the Bronx. His mother and father had left Europe in the early 20th century. If they had not left... Gottlieb and his family might well have been arrested during the Nazi period, and he might have been sent to a concentration camp where he could have been the victim of one of these ghoulish experiments by some Nazi doctor. Instead, he, came, he grew up in the United States, and he wound up working shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with the very doctors who conducted those experiments. So that's just one of the many Bizar- aspects that makes you wonder, who was
0: this guy? I can't emphasize enough to listeners how deep the, the very real rabbit hole goes of just uh, horrific things this guy was involved in and managed to work on or be around without, without anyone knowing or noticing until a, a book like this comes along. It's, it's incredible.
1: I tell you, this is my 10th book. I've written a lot of stories and discovered a lot of stories that surprised me and might have shocked other people. But this is the first time I've really been shocked. I'm still in shock at what I discovered while working on this book. I cannot believe that this guy existed and that these things happened. It's really something I'm still coming to grips with. It makes you ask yourself how much of what happens in the world is carried out in complete secrecy by people we've never heard of and uh, doing things that we know nothing about. It's something that ties his era to our era because we can certainly ask that question today
0: yeah absolutely. and And it's also as far as Sidney Gottlieb's character, like as as far as what kind of a person he was, it seems like it's it's a little hard to pin down his morality. Like, you explore it fully, but he he has a lot of faces and he has a lot of aspects to him. And I don't know how much is what he did for the CIA rooted in just what? the government and country wanted at the time in terms of security and in terms of feeling like we could uh, hold off the Soviets.
1: Gottlieb was a fascinating character because besides everything he was doing during the day, directing this massive program of experimentation that resulted in so much death and suffering, He was also, by night, a very humble, caring, compassionate, spiritual person. He lived in an eco-lodge in the woods with no running water. He grew his own vegetables. (laughs) He meditated. He studied Buddhism. He wrote poetry. He got up before dawn to milk his goats. Uh, When he retired, he traveled the world and went to work in a leper colony. So, How do you put this Jekyll and Hyde figure together? He, of course, never spoke about any of this, but maybe he could have told himself something like uh, what you suggested, that in the panic of that era, he might have come to the conclusion that dangers were so great that any kind of transgression uh, was reasonable to fight them. Commitment to a cause is the ultimate justification for immoral acts. And among the most seductive of those causes is patriotism. That posits the nation as a value so transcendent that anything you do in its service is virtuous. So at some point, Gottlieb overlooked or left behind a central question of conscience, which is, Is there a limit to the amount of evil you can do in a good cause before the evil starts to outweigh the good? He never asked himself that question, and instead he used his commitment to patriotism and belief that he was defending nothing less than the future of human life on Earth to Assume the role of God and and freely destroy the lives of innocent people uh, for what he believed were good reasons. And that was a sin that troubled him deeply in his later
0: years. Yeah, it really seems to have. Well, and, and then in terms of those sins and those people he's affecting, you mentioned earlier that they were trying all sorts of different drugs to to achieve the spine control and also a lot of tortures and other steps to eliminate the brain to replace it with the brain. Not good. But as far as how they tested this on people, it seems like they tested a lot of different things on a lot of unknowing people. And I'm I'm curious how they could have possibly thought it was okay to do that without people's consent. It's, it's just insane.
1: After the Second World War, there was the famous uh, doctor's trial at Nuremberg. Out of that trial came a code called the Nuremberg Code that was supposed to govern future experiments on human beings. Its central clause is that uh, the informed consent of the participant is essential when you're experimenting with human beings. We sentenced people to hang for violating those rules, but yet Gottlieb and the people he worked with violated them all the time. If they had been judged by the Nuremberg standards, they too would have definitely been found guilty. So Gottlieb started his mind control project and his search for ways to destroy human minds or control human minds at the same time that CIA officers in Europe and in Asia were capturing people they thought were spies or communist agents and were trying to find ways of extracting information from them. So these two projects kind of merged. They both saw a common interest. Gottlieb was able to send... Combinations of drugs and potions that he brewed in his laboratory at uh, Fort Detrick in Maryland to operatives who would carry them to Europe or to East Asia, and sometimes he went himself and test these out on people they had arrested who they thought might be enemy agents, or refugees who didn't seem to have any friends or know anybody, people they called expendables, meaning that nobody would notice if they disappeared. And I even found one uh, protocol saying that disposal of the bodies is no problem. There's several uh, references in uh, various memos to whether or not there will be a disposal problem after this experiment. So he used... The panic of the era to justify what must have been the most extreme experiments ever conducted under the auspices of the U.S. government, and they were done in absolute violation of every legal and moral code.
0: Yeah, and it, uh, as you said earlier about the actions of Gottlieb and a couple other people around him, uh, speaking to how we act today, uh, they were not only testing people in the United States without their consent or knowledge, they were also doing extremely extraordinary unethical tests on people in Germany and in East Asia and in a few other places around the world in in a way that sort of echoes certain black sites and so on uh, the US has to this day it's it's crazy and it seems like it was really invented in this era
1: You're absolutely right so I even have a section in my book in which I point out That what we did to prisoners in Vietnam, and then what we taught police forces in Latin America to do to prisoners in the 1980s, and then what we did in uh, Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib, actually is a direct... Result of Gottlieb's research. When you read the uh, guidebooks that are used by interrogators at places like Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo, you can see directly that they're taking the ideas that Gottlieb developed. How do you disassociate a person from his environment? How do you break a person down? Uh, how do you isolate a person? And what kinds of drugs can you use and techniques can you use to destroy a person's ability to resist or even be aware of his own environment. Gottlieb's legacy definitely lives on when you see those pictures from Abu Ghraib and uh, read about the tortures that are being perpetrated in, in prisons around the world. He was the most prolific torturer of his generation, and certainly the most gentle-hearted torturer. There was hardly ever a torturer who was such a sweet and spiritual and compassionate guy. This is what makes him so yeah. fascinating, among other things. He, he was a creator and a destroyer at the same time. He was an outlaw who served power. And as I said, he, he was a very spiritually loving, compassionate torturer. How do you put all this together? It's a Jekyll and Hyde story uh, writ large, and I try to weave that contradiction into the book to try to raise questions that even go beyond this particular person and uh, this particular project.
0: Yeah, because truly he's clocking out of work, going back home to his cabin in Virginia with his wife and four children and living off the land and getting interested in just uh, spirituality and being a whole person person, and then describe more of these tortures that he's going and doing when he's in the office, because it's it's uh, it seems like it was a lot of uh, sensory deprivation and some physical pain, but uh, also primarily using all sorts of different drugs on people.
1: So Gottlieb, with the ordered mind of a scientist, decided that uh, he would subcontract his research projects. He just had a very small group of chemists. They didn't have facilities for it to bring in patients and to have doctors and clinicians, so they subcontracted these projects out, and Gottlieb had a total of 149 of what he called sub projects. And many of these were designed to test the use of different drugs and techniques. For example, he directed a project at McGill University in Canada in which people who came in for normal treatment of minor psychological problems like postpartum depression or marital unhappiness were caught up in this web. And in this particular case, they were put into comas for extended periods, lasting for weeks with heavy sedation. They were put in sensory deprivation chambers during this period and uh, subjected to strobe lights uh, over many hours. Then they would have head. Phones put on at which phrases would be repeated tens of thousands of times, a phrase like, for example, "My mother hates me," after uh-huh. a period of weeks <laughs> of this, and all sorts of drugs being fed to you intravenously. What happens when they slowly wake you up? Do you start to believe your mother hates you, or does something come out of this? Uh, not needless to say, all that did was ruin people 's lives. It never produced anything. In another experiment that they uh, carried out in a prison in Kentucky, seven African-American prisoners were uh, segregated, not told what they were being given, and administered what the doctor there called double, triple, and quadruple doses of LSD every day for 77 days. So just imagine what happens to your head over that kind of a period. It was an effort to see if that overdose level of LSD could blow away a person's mind. These were the kinds of projects that he dreamed up. And Gottlieb himself was a great believer in self-experimentation. He took acid himself, by his own estimate, at least 200 times. So that might have fed his imagination about what kinds of experiments and ideas and tortures he could devise that might bring him closer to this uh, grail, which he ultimately realized was unattainable.
0: Yeah, I I wish he was a little less creative, because as you say, and and I I hope people are processing that, like, this was just one one guy but he was running MK Ultra which was 149 different sub projects all doing a bunch of experiments, most of them on unwilling victims at places around the world and also at jails and universities and hospitals and more facilities like that in the United States. And it was all going on under this one person. When they did use like a, a U.S. facility like that, like a, a university hospital, what was their cover story? How did, they, how did they convince the people working there or convince anyone from the public that this was normal?
1: Godlieb was obsessed with LSD. He's the guy who brought LSD to America. He is the uh, unwitting godfather of the whole LSD counterculture. And in fact, uh, other uh, people like Tim Leary later fully acknowledged this. They didn't know Gottlieb's name, of course. But Tim Leary later said the entire LSD generation was fueled uh, thanks to the cia and when john lennon was asked in an interview about lsd he said quite precisely quite truly uh... we have to remember to thank the cia There was a whole other side to Gottlieb's LSD experimentation, and that had to do with volunteers. So after Gottlieb got the CIA to spend $240,000 to buy the world's entire supply of LSD and bring it to the United States, he used a couple of bogus foundations to notify hospitals and clinics around the United States that uh, there was interest in sponsoring and paying for experiments with LSD, and we would also provide the LSD. So almost overnight, an entire market for this research grew up. A lot of hospitals and uh, universities said they would participate. They had no idea that the money was actually coming from the CIA. So in these experiments, you didn't have overdoses. You didn't have coercion. And who were among the first volunteers for these experiments? One was Ken Kesey, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He took it at the Menlo Park Veterans Administration Hospital, and he loved LSD so much that he even took a job in the hospital so he could steal the LSD out of the medicine cabinets. And and that's what became the basis for his book, which fueled the whole counterculture. Allen Ginsberg, the poet, took his first LSD at a Stanford University experiment sponsored by Sidney Gottlieb, MKUltra, and the CIA. The same thing was true for Robert Hunter, the lyricist of The Grateful Dead. He got his first LSD also at Stanford. Timothy Leary first became interested in psychedelics by reading an article that appeared in Life Magazine in 1957 about a couple of uh, Americans who had made their way to Mexico and taken the magic mushroom. What Tim Leary didn't know, although he realized it later in life, and what he couldn't possibly have known, is that that expedition that produced the Life Magazine article was sponsored by Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA, and one of the guys with them was a CIA agent. So the CIA definitely sponsored and created the LSD counterculture. It's a tremendous irony that the substance that Sidney Gottlieb thought would give the CIA the tool to control the world— actually wound up fueling a generational revolt that was aimed at destroying <laughs> everything the CIA defended and held dear.
0: I feel like they indirectly organized Woodstock. Like, they should be getting royalties on Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Like there, There's a lot of CIA <laughs> work here. And it's also... That path of Gottlieb, especially being just obsessed with drugs, it seems like LSD seems to have been the one he was particularly really really excited about. There's also uh, the stories in the book that are that are almost charming of them trying out other drugs first because they, I guess, just didn't know a lot about marijuana or cocaine or heroin or mescaline. It's just a a story of a CIA guy taking the drug or giving it to someone and then reporting what we all know those drugs do. It's it's almost like cute. But then this LSD project, they got very, very into it to the point where they were running apartments in New York and San Francisco, where they dosed unknowing citizens and then watched what happened to them. It's crazy.
1: The most bizarre one was the one in San Francisco to which you refer. So Gottlieb hired a guy who was a federal narcotics agent, but also a heavy narcotics user, a guy named George Hunter White, who lived kind of a wild life, although he was also a law enforcement officer. He gave White this bizarre assignment, go to San Francisco, where, by the way, he became the head of the drug administration under Harry Anslinger. And at the same time, while working as a drug agent, run a project which became known at the CIA as Operation Midnight Climax in this project. George Hunter White would have people put together a ring of prostitutes, and these women were paid to bring men back to an apartment that Gottlieb had rented and decorated in a kind of a bordello style, and there the men would be fed LSD and other kinds of drugs, while George Hunter White would sit in the next room watching through a one-way window while sitting on his portable toilet and drinking martinis out of a pitcher. So the CIA was actually funding a bordello in San Francisco with the idea of trying to find out, do people talk more freely when they're on drugs, and what about after they have sex? So uh, George Hunter White and people like him had zero training in psychology or any relevant field. They were not qualified at all to assess the reactions of people, but uh, it was a project in which which Gottlieb sought to find out unknown aspects about LSD. What might LSD make people do? Could it loosen people's lips? The prostitutes would sometimes be asked to uh, say to the guy they were with, uh, you know that plane you've been working on, so how high does it fly? And would the person be more likely to answer after taking certain drugs or after having certain sexual experiences? This was something the CIA thought it was urgent to discover and... uh, Gottlieb spent plenty of time out there monitoring his prostitutes and taking advantage of them fully uh, himself, as uh, later turned out to be the case uh, when depositions in some legal cases were made and people spoke about his private life.
0: They codenamed all of that Operation Midnight Climax, which is pretty much not code, right? That's just a description of what's going on, basically.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, even MK yes. Ultra is a great name because Alan Dulles, the director of the CIA, was convinced that mind control could be the key to global mastery if you could succeed in unlocking that. Key. if you could if you could open that door find a way to control other people's minds then other CIA successes of the early 50s like overthrowing the government of Guatemala or overthrowing the government of Iran would pale into insignificance and that's why Alan Dulles gave it this non code code name MK ultra
0: yeah it's way too cool yeah as a name the, the, the things are bad well and uh, and then in terms of just kind of what they were going for and then later deciding was impossible. They, these guys almost sound like the stories you hear about medieval alchemists, uh, where they, they think they can make lead gold and they try forever, except in these CIA guys' cases, they were poisoning and breaking the brains of countless people just to try to get there. It's, it's baffling they could get away with it.
1: The range of Gottlieb's ambition and his imagination is literally mind-boggling, I don't think there was ever any intelligence officer in history who searched so intently for ways to capture and manipulate human minds. He would write memos sometimes listing the kind of substances he was looking for, and maybe his use of LSD made him all the more creative in making up this list. He wrote one in uh, 1955 in which he said, uh, wouldn't it be great, for example, to come up with a substance that would promote what he called illogical thinking and impulsiveness to the point where the recipient would be discredited in public? This was the idea you could give drugs to some foreign leader before he was about to speak. Could there be physical methods or materials that would produce amnesia? Could you produce shock and confusion over an extended period of time with some kind of uh, a tool or a pill that would be capable of being used uh, surreptitiously? Could you find a substance that would produce immediate physical disablement like paralysis? Could you find a substance that would alter personality structure in a way that would open the mind to dependence on someone else? Could you find a substance which even in very small amounts would make it impossible for a person to move or perform any physical activity? Could there be a knockout drug that would knock out an entire building? Or could there be a pill you could take to make a drunk man sober? It just never ended. And Gottlieb showed himself to be the visionary, imaginative figure that his CIA superiors were looking for when they hired him in 1951.
0: Yeah. And and as I understand, they hired him on the recommendation of a professor he had studied under in college, but they had started in agronomy or, or dealing with some kind of uh, plant cultivation and what funguses do. And then it led into this whole crazy other world.
1: Gottlieb, as a graduate student at uh, Caltech, had been declared ineligible to serve in the U.S. military during the Second World War because he had a club footy. He limped. He couldn't walk straight. And this weighed on him. He felt that he had not been able to do his part for his country. I think that might have fueled his eagerness to join the CIA. Uh, He had been working as a government chemist in a few laboratories, but... He was happy, I think, to get the call from the CIA to try to use some of his scientific knowledge there, but neither he nor anyone else could have had any inkling of the phantasmagorical kind of science that he would be called upon to practice.
0: And also, I just doing my own psychoanalysis of him, I think he really enjoyed this work on a a very basic liking-doing-it level, because for one thing, he... Kept dosing coworkers with LSD, uh, which leads into the entire story of, of Frank Olson's death that's in the documentary Wormwood. Does that seem right? Like he, he really enjoyed just putting LSD into the drinks of his coworkers without them knowing about it.
1: I don't think he was a sadist. But he might as well have been, considering yeah. the kinds of things that he did. Because of his job, MK Ultra. he had this license to kill or a license to do essentially whatever he wanted. He had life or death power over other people's minds and over other people's bodies. He was a master manipulator. I think he, he was enthralled by the role that he played and what it allowed him to do. Sometimes, as I was working on this book, it made me think back to the years when I used to cover Latin America, and I wrote about countries where government-sponsored death squads were active uh, during the 1970s and 80s. I came across cases where you'd find some officer or death squad member who would tenderly read a little bedtime story to his kid and tuck him into bed and give him a nice kiss, and then get out in the car and go out for an evening of torturing people, and then come back and kiss his sleeping baby again. Uh, Gottlieb wow. kind of recalled that uh, jarring coexistence to me. I think he, he was a little bit like that. His cheerfulness and his community activities and his spiritual aspect and having the picture of Desmond Tutu on his wall and verses from the Quran was all, in a sense, a facade that covered day-to-day work overseeing experiments in which human lives were regularly destroyed.
0: Yeah. And those things, th- those things are so right next to each other in these stories. Like there's one where one of Gottlieb's kids had a girlfriend at the time. And the girlfriend describes that whenever she went over, their family was very open and frank and and positive, And, and the parents were into folk dancing uh, and studying that. And then at the same time, one time her, her boyfriend Gottlieb's kid showed her a wall of secret guns and a secret room and said, uh, yeah, yeah, my dad makes poison tooth Paste and kills people for a living. It's very exciting, uh, and that's all happening with this one person. It's it's bizarre. I, it's it's. I wanted to say I love it just because I didn't have a better phrase there, but uh, you know what I mean. It's it's crazy.
1: Finding that girlfriend and getting a little bit of insight into the personal lives, the home lives of the Gottlieb family was was a great uh, asset for me. I I worked so hard to try to find anybody that had any contact with them. So I found a few individuals, but actually even though I was able to locate a number of people who r- would have been around at the CIA at the time when he was at uh, his peak, many of them really didn't know him, and what he was doing was even a secret inside the CIA. Nobody knew wow. what MK Ultra was, other than a handful of people. Very few people understood that any details of what gottlieb was doing while i was working on this book by coincidence i ran into a guy who is a retired former director of the cia and i said to him i'm writing a biography of Sidney gottlieb and he looked at me and he said i never heard of him and i believe him <laughs> because gottlieb and he was used invisible to direct the CIA even to the cia hierarchy that was part
0: of the project <laughs> That's incredible. Also, I think uh, with with anything like this, where you're 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 an uh, amazing journalist and, and author, and and know how to research this kind of thing, and at the same time, how hard is it to source and verify and track down things about the CIA? It, it seems like there's a lot of obstacles there.
1: It's a challenge, naturally, and piecing together the biography of a person who lived in total invisibility is right. a <laughs> unique challenge. <laughs> One Um,
0: photo, yeah.
1: (laughs) Nonetheless, there's enough out there to try to figure out who this guy was. Now, maybe my favorite sentence in the book comes at the end when I have a little sort of acknowledgments and uh, uh, sum up in the last pages. And I, I started out by saying this. Everything in this book is true, but not everything that's true is in this book. I am under no illusion that I have discovered all the main things that Gottlieb did. Most of what he did is never going to be known. You can extrapolate in your own mind and guess, but I don't do that. I only write about facts. I like the readers to be able to figure out what must also have happened. But it's definitely true that he uh, lived in a way that was intentionally designed to preserve his anonymity and when he left the CIA he and the one guy who had some idea of what he was doing, Richard Helms who was then the director of the CIA agreed that they should destroy all records of this project and Gottlieb personally drove out to the CIA Records Center to supervise this destruction and the uh, head of the archive wrote in his memo that these boxes of files were destroyed quote over my stated objection. So uh, (laughs) those files would have contained huge amounts of detail. They were destroyed forever. There's a lot we'll never know but I do think that almost everything that anybody's ever going to know about Sidney Gottlieb, at least at this point in history, is contained in this book because he has never essentially been unmasked or, or even to a certain degree identified in the fullness of what he did up until now.
0: Yeah, because it, it's truly full of that stuff. And and even I think with any figure like this, the question becomes, how did he get away with it? Like, why didn't the government step in and stop him? And I was I was Almost surprised that there were hearings at all, but, uh, but speak on the, the hearings that they did have uh, uh, shortly after he destroyed all the evidence.
1: <laughs> so Gottlieb uh, retired from the CIA and then went off on his journey around the world to help poor suffering people. He went with his wife. They sold their belongings and they worked in places where they served charity. They were working in a hospital that treated leprosy patients in India when in 1975, Gottlieb got a very unwelcome message from the cia which essentially said somebody here has figured out that you exist and that somebody is working for something called the church committee that's investigating the cia for the u.s senate and you're going to have to come home so gottlieb faced this terrifying reality that he was going to have to account for some of what he did and maybe even appear in public which is something he never imagined He did appear, although in a closed room under a pseudonym, in 1975. And then again, he appeared uh, in a closed room at a hearing in 1977. But senators never got close to the heart of his mystery. They were concerned about other abuses of the CIA. MKUltra was not very much known. Much of what is in my book was not understood at that time. Therefore, senators didn't know the right questions to ask him. Nobody asked him, did you ever conduct experiments in other countries? Did anybody ever die uh, during any of your experiments? So many of the questions that would be so obvious now never came up. And then towards the later years, I think the CIA developed a new strategy to deal with this, which was uh, people were out of control. It was all Sidney's fault. One guy went nuts, and he did a lot of things that we're now sorry for. This is a way of minimizing the institutional responsibility of the CIA and of the U.S. government, but in fact, there's a culture in secret services in which ignorance is a cherished asset. You don't wanna know too much. Then it always weighs on you. You might have to tell it to somebody else. That's why I think even Alan Dulles, the director of the CIA, uh, only knew the general outlines of MKUltra probably some of that would have been passed up to Eisenhower through Dulles' brother, the Secretary of State. But again, only enough so that senior officials could be reassured that this kind of research was going on. And what does it entail? What do you have to do in order to try to find out about mind control? That part I don't want to hear about. I know we've got Sidney doing that, and let him take care of it. That was the attitude. Really, nobody at the CIA, other than Godley's own deputy, probably knew more than just the general outlines of what he was doing. It was a way, in a sense, to uh, set the CIA up for later being able to shrug its shoulders and say, one guy went crazy. Now we realize that, oh, we're so sorry
0: as we as just citizens who who want a, a cia and government that's not doing uh, crazy horrible things what can we do in terms of i think on a basic level just hearing a story about the cia and knowing whether it's valid and also whether it's it's reflective of something larger because i your your book is incredibly well sourced and put together but also when i'm just on the internet i come across random cia stuff and i i feel like i could use skills to uh, to know how to read that and know how to interpret it
1: the whole Gottlieb story does raise the question about conspiracy theories, and uh, it makes you realize that although being a conspiracy theorist might be dangerous, if there's also the equivalent danger of being a non-conspiracy theorist and believing that everything is as it seems to be. So his story yeah. is pretty chilling in uh, what it tells you about how much – secret organizations can get away with, and uh, how much uh, a psychopath can be covered up by the fact that he's working for the government, that all these torments are officially justified. It is a story that resonates beyond uh, that era and, and that particular research project, because it speaks to the question of... What's behind what we see? Are the leaders that we see in the world the real leaders of the world? I think this grows out of uh, an understanding by most Americans that our government – doesn't act in the world uh, according to the principles that we proclaim. Once we see that, conspiracy theories uh, begin to seem more reasonable. And uh, I think that does mean that the development of the covert sphere has definitely fueled the idea of conspiracies. And when you read a book like mine, you see that not all of these uh, ideas are so crazy. Just to give one example that I thought was really interesting. You mentioned the case of Frank Olson, who was one of the uh, chemists working with Gottlieb and later fell to his death or plunged to his death uh, out of a window in uh, New York City. There was one point during the days when Frank Olson was quite disoriented that he and a couple of his CIA comrades was stopped for dinner at a restaurant in Maryland by the side of the road, and he didn't want to eat, Because he thought the CIA might be poisoning his food. Now, the belief that the CIA is poisoning your food is a classic of the conspiracy-addled mind up there with the uh, aluminum hats and the, the secret messages from outer space. But Frank Olson himself had made poisons to be put in people's food by CIA agents. So... When he thought that, it wasn't a conspiracy theory. It was real, and he knew it. So that makes you wonder where to draw the line between uh, conspiracy theories and non-conspiracy theories.
0: Well, and it leaves me thinking that the, the key thing is to just get enough sourcing to know it's an actual thing. Like, he had the sourcing uh, to know that the CIA put stuff in food because he'd, he'd done it at his job. So uh, we, can, we can get, the, uh, hopefully, journalism and so on like this to, to know what's going on.
1: Yeah, well, let's talk about it over dinner sometime. I know somebody we could invite.
0: <laughs> Don't drink the gin I'm... and tonics, though. Yeah, I'm bringing a brown bag. I'll see you there.
1: (laughs) It was amazing. You know, Gottlieb even poisoned, or he was said to have tainted the punch bowls at CIA Christmas parties and retirement parties with LSD just so he could watch how people reacted. So uh, those must have been quite some parties.
0: Yeah, that was – and I, I think in the book you say that a, a memo went around before one of the parties saying like, hey, no one dose the the punch with LSD please, which I – and it fits in with just wider things. I think we've learned about offices allowing harassment and other terrible things and no one caring. It, it seems like slippage of basic moral standards – happening in organizations like this is really crucial. Like even there's another part in the book where Gottlieb helped a couple of the Watergate burglars have fake IDs and spy tools to do the Watergate robbery. Pretty important. Pretty bad.
1: And the fact that he uh, supposedly was putting LSD into the punch bowls actually had its own echo several years later, because at Ken Kesey's acid tests and at the Grateful Dead parties in California, where they invited all their friends and all the Hell's angels, they did the same thing. So uh, without knowing who Godly was, uh, they both came up with the idea that uh, sticking some acid in the punch might produce some fun results.
0: It's, it's astounding. And uh, again, I'm bringing a brown bag and a water bottle, and I'll, I'll see you at that party. Sounds good. <laughs> I'll look forward to it. Thanks. <laughs> Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Stephen Kinzer for taking the time and sharing so many incredible stories, and and also as we discussed, researching something a little bit impossible to research. It's not totally impossible, and he accomplished it. But again, Sidney Gottlieb is a person who there is one picture of ever, <laughs> and and someone who has been as anonymous as possible throughout his entire life. He's no longer around, but this is such an important thing to examine. And and understand in order to know how an entire government and government organization can do these kinds of things, because maybe we can avoid them in the future. And in our food notes, you will find full understanding of what we talked about today. Stephen's book is linked there. One more time, that title is Poisoner in Chief, Sidney Gottlieb, and the Search for CIA Mind Control. You will also find in those footnotes, those Castro things I mentioned, the the ways they tried to overthrow that uh, leader of Cuba, and a few other CIA things from Cracked and from elsewhere on the internet that are, are very relevant to what we talked about today, such as that very early history and also the ways it ties into Watergate and World War II and more. We are also linking a documentary on Netflix called Wormwood, uh, and it's it's a documentary that also has some uh, like Hollywood style production to some reenactment of some scenes. Peter Sarsgaard is in it and it's it's very uh, high, high quality. And we're linking Wormwood because it's it's an excellent piece of work, and also it's basically the only other place you'll come across Sidney Gottlieb's name at all. Uh, he's portrayed by Tim Blake Nelson in the theatrical bits of it, and that's a documentary about someone we touched on briefly named Frank Olson, who worked for the CIA, worked for Gottlieb, was dosed with LSD by Gottlieb without his permission or knowledge, and uh, was later uh, sort of hand-waved by the government as having chosen to jump out of a uh, very hard hard to jump out of hotel window in New York City to his death. The evidence suggests uh, it was not that, but that's all in that documentary. And it's another work about Gottlieb if you're interested in finding one. And beyond all that, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. This episode was engineered by Jordan Duffy and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right. Social media, a space where, as I said before, on uh, we did an episode recently that touched on the CIA and other organizations manipulating movie making in, in a very light way. And in the process of that, I learned the CIA has a not totally uninteresting Twitter account. There's a lot of uh, like spy craft history and pictures of weird gadgets. And I don't know, it's better than some other accounts out there. Again, don't know if I can endorse it because it's the CIA and they're uh, sort of the worst. My own Twitter account, which is not attached to any of this uh, horrible stuff at all, is at alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alec instagram, and I'm on the wider internet at my website, alecschmitty.com. That's got my show dates, my fun email newsletter of free internet stuff tips, and so much more. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked podcasts. So how about that? Talk to you then.